Welcome back to the Scotland Starts Here podcast. This is episode eight. It's lovely, as always, to have you with us exploring opportunities for tourists and visitors in the south of Scotland. I'm Dave Howard, and this absolutely packed episode is all about the region's arts and cultural offer. Shortly, we will join the trail of not one, but two of Scotland's most famous sons, the first in Dumfries. I'm the museum attendant in charge of the Robert Burns Centre in Dumfries. His masterpiece was written here, Tam O'Shanter, 1790, a fantastic, long, epic, mock epic poem which is just one of the funniest and, and most human and still an entertaining thing to read, even hundreds of years later. And the second at Abbotsford, the beautiful stately home he built for himself outside Melrose. Abbotsford is the home of uh, the great 19th century writer Sir Walter Scott. It is pretty much as was left in 1832 because Scott was so famous at the time. So you get to see this pretty unrivaled time capsule. You can see his desk, you can see his worn chair, you can look at all his little personal effects just as they were left. We'll take a stroll down one street in picturesque Kukubri with an absolutely astonishing pedigree of art history. When the tide goes out, you have this gray, silty mud and that can throw up a sort of gray pink into the sky, which creates a very special light. And we'll visit Scotland's national book town, hearing the very common south of Scotland story of people coming for just a short visit, but losing their hearts and moving here. I'm Dutch, uh, 66, hooked on Wigton since 14, 15 years. We came for the first book festival. We had so much joy and such a lovely place and such a lovely people when you come back year after year. You come more and more and then you decide to live here. First though, we're picking up pretty much where we left off last time. Our last episode, Families Outdoors, was all about places to get the kids out and about and exhausted in the fresh air. Well, there is plenty of that here in Dumfries alongside the River Nith. We are at Moat Bray, a home and garden where Peter Pan author J.M. Barry loved to play as a child. It's now Scotland's National Centre for Children's Literature and Storytelling. You just think lovely, wonderful thoughts and they lift you up in the air. The ambient sounds of pirates and the Lost Boys playing in the garden. Brilliant, that really caught me by surprise then, <laughs> genuinely. <laughs> good, good, that's the, that's the reaction that we're, we're hoping for. I'll teach you how to jump on the wind's back and then away we go. We are in the garden, the enchanted garden of Mowbray. It was the garden that a young J.M. Barry used to play with his friends in. And years later, when he was hugely famous, he came back to Dumfries and he gave a speech and he said that it was with playing with his friends in this garden that gave him the idea of Neverland. And he called this land, this garden, his enchanted land. Many, many years later, the Peter Pan Mowbray Trust saved the historic building of Mowbray and its gardens for uh, future generations. And we decided to open a centre, a national centre for children's literature and storytelling right here in Dumfries in order to celebrate not just the inspiration that he had, but also help encourage future generations to have their own inspiration to write stories themselves. 
It's quite a common misconception that Jay and Barry lived in Mowbray. He did not. He actually lived quite close, just further down the road from here. But his friends, the Gordon children, Stu and Hal Gordon, they used to live at Mowbray. So they would climb over the, the wall and go play in the garden. And they used to play pirates in the garden because obviously the garden juts up against the river Niff that runs through Dumfries. Um, and they gave themselves pirate names. Jay and Barry's actual pirate name was 16 String Jack. And of course, that sense of inspiration, that sense of magic about this place, this garden, fed into his later work. It was this garden, this house, that gave him the inspiration for Neverland. I can hear the ticking clock. Yes, the, you can the, hear croc the, the crocodile. Oh my goodness! We need to hurry this up, or we'll <laughs> uh, we'll get eaten. Um, uh, I've, I've never really done an interview where I've been so uh, so distracted by noises <laughs> off like I have. Well, just that now. was purely intentional. When we were designing the building and particularly the garden, we wanted this place. We didn't want this place to be a botanical garden. We wanted it to be a place of magic and a place of surprises. And right now we're stood here in the garden. I'm watching your facial expressions as little voices pop out of the greenery. And the whole point of that is that it creates a sense of otherworldliness and of magic. And that's what we wanted. No matter how old you are, the idea is that you, you, you're in the garden or you walk through the garden, you get that sense of magic that Jay and Barry had when he played in the garden. Here's a young lad coming by now, wandering around, exploring. Absolutely, and the great thing about seeing the young people play in the garden is that they are constantly looking for where the sources of the voices, the sources of the sounds. As you can see on our right hand side, we have the River Niff. As you can see also, the Jolly Roger juts out over the river. That was really important because if you stand there, you do get this sense of being on the river, the sense of actually being on a real boat, which is something that we really, again, really wanted to have. And there's various slides and you can play on the rigging, they can go off ladders. It's, a, it's essentially a play area for young people. Oh wow, I can see a really long slide. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is the Lost Boys Lookout slide. It's quite an exciting slide. Yeah. I've been down it as an adult. Uh, you go at quite some speed and at, at one point I did think I was gonna just slide into the river Niff. <laughs> if you look upwards towards our right hand side, you'll notice that we've got the fairies houses brilliant so what we tend to say is tinkerbell lives in this one and on your left hand side this is where we have our resident fairy which you'll meet soon called shortbread okay i'm not sure i've ever met a shortbread. real life fairy before um yeah she's she's a she's a feisty one shortbread um she likes beating up the pirates shortbread's job is to keep the pirates from entering the house and bringing their muddy their muddy footprints into the house and things so is that her singing that's Wendy, because we're here at Wendy's house. Wendy's house is actually one of our storytelling spots. Before I put you to bed, I have just time to finish the story of Cinderella. You can easily spend a day exploring just the garden at Moat Bray, but there's so much more indoors, including, as promised, my first ever encounter with a real-life, actual fairy. We're in the drawing room, and I'm going to introduce you to one of our fairies, one of our resident fairies. Hello, very nice to meet you. My name's Shortbread. You too, Shortbread. I hear you keep the pirates in the garden and out of the house. I do, I do. I wear a, a pink boxing glove on my left hand, keeps the pirates at bay. Yep, I'm the house fairy at Moat Bray, which means I'm, I'm better than just a normal fairy. I protect the house from the pirates and the crocodiles. So yeah, that's my job. What would the other fairies think about you saying you're better than a normal fairy? Oh, they hear it all the time. 
I tell them all the time. They, they roll their eyes a bit, but I say it all the time. They're used to it by now. And what is it like dealing with the children here? They see my boxing glove and they realise they've got to behave. But no, I love it. They, they're all great. They all behave lovely. None of them are like the pirates or the crocodiles. They all behave wonderfully when they're around me. So I love them. <laughs> um, I don't know if we can get you out of character to talk to you as, <laughs> okay, yeah, as, of the, as the actor. Is that, or is that possible? <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Because <laughs> John's been telling me all about how this is a magical place for children. And yeah. the aim is to inspire imagination. Uh, and you're a huge part of that. You, you must yeah. love that role. I absolutely love it. It's such a lovely um, experience and such a great opportunity to inspire children. And especially little girls, because Shortbread is such a big, like, bullshy female character. She's such a great inspiration to little girls. To... Almost like the anti-fairy in that respect. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. She's, she's teaches little girls to be tough and strong and that... Um, they don't need someone like Peter Pan to get things done. They can do whatever they want by themselves. So, yeah, I think I just love it. I think it's a brilliant opportunity. I just wonder, would you have liked Moat Bray to have been here in Dumfries when you were small? Absolutely. I would have been here all the time. I probably would have written more and read more if I came here a lot more. It would have been brilliant. Now, we've been introduced to you as Shortbread. What, what's your real name? <laughs> <laughs> My name's Lucy. Lucy McGill. It's lovely to meet you. We'll let you get back because you've got, I know you've got children waiting. Thank you very much. Yeah, I've got performance to do. Thank you so much. John, what do you think J.M. Barry would make of Moat Bray in its current incarnation? Yeah, I think he'd love it. Fundamentally, J.M. Barry was all about celebrating childhood whimsy and magic. And that's what we're all about. We're not a museum. We're not a botanical gardens. We're something alive, something dynamic, something fun. John, thanks so much for speaking to me today. We need to just let people know how they can find out more about Moat Bray. What's the website? What are the contact details? Yeah, contact details. If you go to our webpage, it's www.peterpanmoatbray.org. Or alternatively, you can find us on our social media. Just, just look up Moat Bray and we're there. Well, so great to meet John. And of course, shortbread. A short way down the River Nith here in Dumfries, we're picking up the trail now of arguably the most famous Scot to ever have lived. My name's Jan Cormack. Senior is stretching it, but I'm the museum attendant in charge of the Robert Burns Centre in Dumfries. I'm lucky enough to work in one of the most fantastic museums. It's just the best ever, so... This is a fantastic building and it was built in 1781. It was the town corn mill in its earliest incarnation. And we have the Robert Burns Centre exhibition room here, which is the space you're in right now. So it's double height. We have the town model, which shows you what Dumfries looked like in 1796. We have items of interest in very secure cases around about me. Now, Burns. Burns. Is synonymous for most people around the world with Scotland. Those things kind of come together in people's minds. It's your caricature. Caricature, caricature. That's right. I guess that's a good way of thinking of it. But but synonymous nonetheless. And actually, what people might not understand so well is that it was this part of Scotland that Burns was most associated with. Sure. He was born in, in Alloway, up in Ayrshire, but he spent the last nine years of his life here and dying at the age of, as he did, of 37, a real rock star death. He spent the, the majority of his working life here. So he moved down at 29 to Ellisland Farm, which is just north of Dumfries. And the farm didn't particularly work for him. 
and he got another job with the local excise department, moved into Dumfries into a wee flat, and then moved into what was his eventual house in, in what is now Burn Street. So he was, he was associated with this area really during the most productive period of his life. Just around the corner from here is the Robert Burns house and Dumfries is full of pubs claiming to be where Burns did much of his infamous carousing. Right here in the exhibition room though are several special artefacts you just won't find anywhere else. So we have a, a copy of the um, Edinburgh edition of the poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect which is the second edition, it's not the really valuable one. We have a, a, a holograph copy of uh, The Whistle, a ballad, which is the original poem by Burns that this is in his own hand, which is a remarkable thing to see. You have a very fair hand. It's a lovely thing to look at. Looking uh, right down to the end of the museum here, we have the fantastic thing, which is a plaster cast of his skull. You can kind of look into his eyes, or his eye sockets, anyway, and imagine what sort of person yeah. he was. Yeah, the, the, the plaster cast of the skull leads me quite nicely to my next question. People who want to come to this area and find the real Burns, Burns the man rather than Burns the, the legend, what would be your recommendations for them? Obviously they should come here, but there's a whole Burns trail, isn't there? There's all sorts of places yes, around here. a Burns trail that runs through Dumfries, which will take you to some of the high spots. Obviously the, 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 the inns, the hole in the wall, the globe, places where he would spend evenings but also areas associated with him. He was a, a, often went to the Theatre Royal, which is the oldest working theatre in Scotland, and his house, of course, where he lived. And you can appreciate the, the sort of like the domestic setting of him there and his, his work, the little desk that he wrote at, the bed he died in. It's just a, a, a glimpse at the humanity of someone. You mean rather than, rather than the, the kind of the, the stories, the myth? Yes, yes. I mean, he, he did work very hard. He... he was in charge of a huge area of excise when he would ride about 200 miles a week. Now, on a horse, that's a lot. So he would be going around all of Galloway checking that people had, you know, had the right permit for making bricks. That kind of, of really, really pedantic Probably stuff. needed a drink after that. <laughs> I would think so. It was thirsty work. But that's why he, he had a, a good idea of the, the locality and the, his real appreciation for the, the landscape is kind of under, undersold, I think, a wee bit. His masterpiece was written here, and if I was to ask you, what's Burns' masterpiece, what would you say? There's so many different things. So many things different things. Tam O'Shanter, 1790. A fantastic, long, epic, mock epic poem, which is just one of the funniest and, and most human and still an entertaining thing to read, even hundreds of years later. To give you a little bit of a rundown on the story, Tam's off for market day and he's, he decides to carouse with a mate after he's been to the market, so he's off drinking. Meanwhile at home, Mrs Tam is metaphorically looking at her watch, thinking, where is he? And Burns describes her beautifully as gathering her brows like a gathering storm, nursing her wrath to keep it warm. And who hasn't been in that situation when they've been out late and their, their other half's at home going, where are you? Where have you been? And you, know, you can see her sort of like working herself up into a, into a rage. It's just fabulous, fabulously written. He was a real wit. Yeah. I was going to ask you, what are your favourite lines, if you have any favourite lines? That one. Um, ah, there's a, there's a bit where Tam comes back and he's, he's, he's well, you know, three feet to the wind. And he hears music coming from Alloway Old Kirk. So he's, he sort of trots over on his horse to look through the window to see what's happening. 
and you can see all these, you know, people dancing, and there's there's skeletons coming out of their coffins and dancing around, and there's all this bagpipe music, and there's a a, a devil, the deal himself, a towsy tyke, black, grim, and large, playing the bagpipes on a windowsill, and they're all dancing around. Tam has an eye for the ladies, like possibly the author did, and uh, Burns describes Nanny, one of the, the dancing witches. He's describing her shirt, her cutty sark of paisley harn, that while a lassie she had worn, in longitude though sorely scanty, it was her best and she was vaunty. She was proud. You know, she's got this shirt that she's had since she was a wee girl, and it's a wee bit short. So Tam is enjoying this through the window, and it's the, it, the longitude though sorely scanty. That's smart, you know, the great line. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just looking over your shoulder at the, the skull, the cast of the skull of Burns. He was nodding in approval then. As, as we you were, <laughs> enjoyed that bit. <laughs> as, as you were reciting his lines, he enjoyed that. Yeah. Jam, thank you very much. You're most welcome, Dave. <laughs> so I was careful to say arguably when I said Burns could be Scotland's most famous son, because at Abbotsford, a magnificent stately home between Melrose and Galashiels in the borders, we're with someone now who might have a different view. My name is Kirsty Archer-Thompson. I'm the uh, Collections and Interpretation Manager at Abbotsford in the Scottish Borders. And Abbotsford is the home of uh, the great 19th century writer Sir Walter Scott, who was born in 1771 and died here in 1832. Abbotsford's a very, a very unusual and a very special place. It's unlike any other historic house you'll visit. It's not the home of, uh, you know, a landed aristocratic family, for example. This was a, a great creative mind who, um, you know, started out from fairly humble beginnings and just created this fantasy home out of his imagination. You, I can tell from talking to you, you clearly love working there. You love your surroundings. Just sort of describe some of your favourite places, some of the parts of the house and the grounds that that really make your spine tingle. Gosh, I mean, I, I have so many, literally. And the lovely thing about working here is that they change. You know, the, the longer you're here and the, the stories that you uncover, particularly in a curatorial role, you know, the love just, just builds from there. I think one of my favourite rooms is the study because, you know, it's the beating heart of, of this place as a writer's home. And one of the special things about Abbotsford is it, it is pretty much as was left in 1832 because Scott was so famous at the time. So you get to see this pretty unrivaled time capsule. You know, you, you can see his desk, you can see his worn chair, you can look at all his little personal effects just as they were left. I'm really pleased actually, Kirsty. This is episode eight, the fourth episode of the second series of Scotland Starts Here. And I feel like I've been sort of following Sir Walter Scott around. I visited Smalham Tower, you know, the, the really evocative Peel Tower, where he kind of first got inspired by Scotland stories, and also Scott's view. And I heard that brilliant story about how the horses pulling his coffin were, were, were so used to stopping there that they even stopped during his funeral. So he's such a key figure to the south of Scotland. Who was he? Who is he to Scotland and Scotland's story? That's a big question, isn't it? It is, yeah. How long have you got? I mean, I think one of the things that I will always say to visitors when they're, when they're asking about Scott's sense of, of identity is, you know, he was a, a proud Scot and a proud patriot. 
but also above anything else, a passionate Scottish borderer and probably the greatest Scottish borderer that has ever lived. And although now the Scottish borders means a very distinct region within southern Scotland, for that you can read the whole of the border region, so Dumfries and Galloway and the whole south of Scotland too. This was a man who didn't just write, despite what we, we may often think, Jacobite novels. You know, he also set many, many poems and novels here in the borders. And people came here, you know, right from the Victorian period to the modern day, tracing the footsteps of, of his characters, following his life story. And you're quite right, you've got amazing places like Smalem Tower very nearby. He's very associated with Kelso, which is a fantastic town in the borders to visit. And also the, the great abbeys, um, of course, he's, he's buried at Dryber Abbey, which um, is a, a beautiful, beautiful site managed by Historic Environment Scotland. Kirsty, it's great to speak to you and to get your enthusiasm for Scotland and, and, and for the borders. Just let's finish up with the sort of practical stuff. What do people who want to visit Abbotsford need to know? Where can they find out more about you online? How can they get to you? Those sorts of questions. Okay, so um, best place to go to find out all of our latest opening times and special events. We have a very vibrant events programme is our website. So that's uh, scotsabbotsford.co.uk and we have a, a fantastic What's On um, page there. We'll also, we're on all the key social media channels as Abbotsford Scott. That's our handle. So you can find us there. So we're in a very accessible part of the central borders. Our nearest train station is only a mile away at Tweed Bank, so we're really, really easy to get to, and I would recommend a good, a good half day to a full day if you want to enjoy all the walks on the wider estate as well. Huge thanks again to Kirsty Archer-Thompson. Obviously, Abbotsford belongs in this episode about the arts and literature, but it could equally have sat in our earlier Ancestry and Castles episode or even Families Outdoors. There are brilliant play areas and things to explore, and as Kirsty says, lots of great walks in the wider grounds. And in this next section of Scotland Starts Here, we're talking about art, because we're in the beautiful little chocolate box harbour town of Kukubri. We're right by the water here. Seagulls right on cue. And introduce yourself for me, please. Tell me a bit about yourself and who you are. My name is Fiona Lee and I'm a local lass. I'm uh, from the McDowell family. We farm um, outside Kukubri near Dundrennan where the lovely Abbey is. And this is my hometown. Um, I have been away a lot, had uh, a decade in London, two decades in Hong Kong, and I'm now a born again Galavidian. And it's a great privilege for me to be able to take visitors around the town and show them some of the history and introduce some of the characters that they might not get to learn about or to meet uh, under normal circumstances. Kukubri has for many years been what's called an artist's colony, with artists and art lovers beating a path to the town. Fiona, as we'll hear, is incredibly passionate and knowledgeable about sharing the town's incredibly rich art heritage and the stories of those who've lived here. I tie together the wonderful Kukubri galleries, which many, many visitors come to see, Broughton House, similarly. So start from very basic principles. We know that Kukubri is an artist's colony. We know that, you know, artists and art lovers flock here. But why? How did that first get started? 
Well, it first got started thanks really to uh, Edward Hornell, also a local boy, although he was born in Australia. He came back here and then he lived here for his entire career. But he became one of the Glasgow boys, who of course are extremely famous, and he invited them to come and visit here. And huge numbers of them came. And um, so Hornell kind of hit the jackpot. He was one of the absolute leaders um, of the Glasgow boys and a tremendous colourist. Yeah, we're going to hear quite a bit in this next section about colour and the importance of good light. The light in Kukubri apparently is perfect for painting. It's all part of the appeal. When the tide goes out, you have this grey, silty mud, and that can throw up a sort of grey pink into the sky, which creates a very special light. This was always special for, for art colonies, the light and also transport as the railway links developed um, 1860 onwards. That was a key feature of the Glasgow key, boys, wasn't yes. it? Was that they, they, wanted, they came to lovely picturesque places exactly. from industrial Glasgow. Exactly. And Kukubri went on being a favourite, probably for, for longer than almost anywhere else. We have our lovely castle here, McClellan Castle, which was built uh, in the late 1500s. It was a castle built not really for military defence, but much more um, as a sign of, of the status of the family. James VI, uh, for example, came to, to visit the castle there. So it makes a lovely backdrop for the town. We're walking at the middle of the road here, which is probably not terribly yes. sensible. No, we always walk in the middle of the road. <laughs> um, you have to, everyone has to stop for the art tour. Um, <laughs> but very often visitors come to the town and they get to the castle and they turn around and they go back down to the main the main sort of drag of uh, St Mary Street where so many of the commercial galleries are because they don't realise the history and what's up here. Actually that's true, it's occurred to me, that, I mean this is, the street we're on now is called High Street, yes. which you would think was the commercial centre. Yes. I'm guessing it was once. It was indeed, this was the, um, the home of the, the big merchants and uh, the wealthy of course, you can tell by the beautiful houses. Some of them are very old indeed, some of them have been built over. So this was the original Main Street with all lots of little uh, wines coming off and we'll look at those in a moment. But I think first of all you want to start your uh, tour with a visit to Broughton House. Hi, Sarah. Oh, hi, good morning. My name is Sarah Jackson. I'm a visitor services assistant here at Broughton House in Kukubri. This is the home of Edward Atkinson Hornell. He bought this house in 1901 and um, used it as a base to uh, promote art and also to sell his own work. Uh, when he died in 1933, he left the house and the paintings and all his collections for the use of the people of the town of Kakubri and visitors thereto. And so uh, this is what we have and it's a remarkable and intact home of a very popular Edwardian artist, together with all its furnishings, all its collections, and all of the art that was left in the house at the time that he died. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And looking around us here, the walls are just festooned with original paintings and artworks. Talk us through some of them. Well, a lot of the paintings on show here in the gallery are actually unfinished. And um, if you look around the edges of them, you can see that there are areas that are unpainted. Some of them are unsigned. And it's wonderful to watch the progression and to see the methodology really behind his painting technique. We've also included images of the photographs that he was very, very reliant on um, to paint the images. Oh, I see. Oh, and, right. Uh, okay, so there's a photograph <coughs> next to the painting of the photograph there, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 
His main uh, subject matter were children, and children don't sit very well for portraits. They don't sit very well um, for anything. <laughs> no. <laughs> so photography was the ideal uh, solution to that particular problem. Almost all of the images that you see of the children on the walls here playing in the countryside are actually taken from photographs, and then he would add the backgrounds later. So just to sort of broaden this out to Kukubri as really a mecca, uh, a destination for artists and art lovers. Hornell was the, the start of that, the, the foundation stone. Well, he wasn't exactly the start. There are always artists in an area uh, like Galloway. It's, it's got beautiful landscapes. It's got a lovely quality of light. And uh, rather like St. Ives, it tended to attract artists into the area. Hornell was major league popular. Um, a lot of the artists who worked uh, in and around Kukubri, he became famous quite early on in his career. Uh, he was very controversial at, at the outset of that career. And uh, other artists tended to gravitate towards him. So we ended up with a very fine collection of artists who were living and working in the town. And because Hornell was so wealthy and so popular, he was in a position to buy housing. He had another 30 houses as well as the one that we're standing in now. And many of these houses he would rent out to visiting artists to live and work in to make Kukubri a proper artist colony. So far, Sarah, we've talked about Hornell. We've talked about the Glasgow boys and the kind of history of the art scene here in Kukubri. But it's not something that's in the past, is it? We're not talking about something that is sort of dead and buried and something to uncover. This is a, a living, uh, moving artist's mecca even now. It certainly is, yeah. There are a lot of artists living and working around in the town. Some of them are professional. But it's, it's wonderful to see so much creativity still going on in the town. I'm sure Hornell would thoroughly approve of it. Thank you, Sarah. That's brilliant. And I'm really pleased to say that actually we have one of those living, breathing artists who's just joined us here in the gallery. Um, Ewan, Ewan McClure. Would you just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about yourself and, and your involvement with this house? Yes, I'm Ewan McClure and I'm an artist in residence here at Broughton House. So you get to use the, the studio that, that Hornell originally set up here. That's right. I have the wonderful privilege of being able to work under that fantastic north-facing skylight that Hornell has designed. So tell us a bit about your art, what you do, and also why it matters to you to be here. Well, I'm a painter in oils. I get most of my inspiration from the late 19th century. That is Hornell's era. I've sometimes joked that I paint as if the 20th century never happened. I mean, I, I do particularly love the natural light and the naturalistic subjects of that era, just at the dawning of modernism. I can see how it would be inspirational to be here in this space and to use that studio. I can also see how it might be a bit intimidating. Well, yes, you do have to raise your game. I mean, you're, you're being seen juxtaposed with, um, as Sarah was saying, someone who's who was a superhero of Scottish art in the early 20th century. So I haven't attempted to um, emulate his style. That would be asking for trouble. So we're heading downstairs to the artist's studio, which is connected to the gallery. To get the full effect of the daylight pouring in, you'd really want to open all three blinds. And this is where you work then, Ewan? It is. This is the purpose-built artist studio. It's almost like a chapel with a vaulted ceiling and a huge 
uh, north-facing skylight that just is the ideal light because it's relatively steady. The, the sun doesn't come around and change the position of the shadows on your subject. Well, Broughton House was superb. Uh, great to meet you and great to meet Sarah. I'm back outside now, back on the high street here in Kukubri and back with Fiona. Fiona, we can continue the tour. Lovely. So we're going off the high street now and down one of the uh, kind of side streets. They're called Wines, aren't they? Exactly. Wines or Closes. And this is a very special property, number nine with the yellow door. And a number of artists have lived here. Let's go down through the little cobbled area. There's actually an artist, a calligrapher, that lives there at the moment. It's becoming clear to me how these streets have kind of an archaeology. You can yes. look at that one house and say, well, yes. uh, this artist lived here between these dates and another famous artist lives here between these dates. Yes. It's, it's layers upon layers and absolutely. texture of history. Oh, absolutely. Ha! I know everybody. Everyone waves to you. I know everybody now. <laughs> <laughs> This was the home of Oppenheimer, Charles Oppenheimer. He lived here as a tenant of Hornell for 28 years. Now, unfortunately, we just don't have time to include in this episode all the brilliant gems and insights and anecdotes that Fiona shared with me. Her encyclopedic knowledge of the layers and textures of Kukubri's art history. She's got stories about buccaneers and even the founding father of the US Navy and how they're all connected to the houses we've passed here today. All I can say to you is get yourself booked onto a tour and experience it for yourself. We'll spend just another couple of minutes now in Fiona's company before we move on. We're going to go into Greengate, which is a very special place. Well, here we are, uh, Greengate drenched in lovely morning sunshine. Gosh, it's beautiful just now, yeah. Yes, and um, this was the home of, as you can see here, uh, Jessie M. King and her husband, E.A. Taylor. Now, they were a fascinating couple. They met at Glasgow School of Art. They came here, well, I said Jessie came here in 1908. When the war broke out in 1914, they came here and made it their permanent home and uh, it changed their lives forever and it changed the life of Kukupri really. She was a close friend of Hornell and there is speculation that Hornell did once propose to her but I'm not quite sure if that's true. Standing here I forget that uh, everyone's listening you can't see this amazing green windows which uh, Jessie M. King had decorated in this fashion and you'll see here the for example the initials here JMK in the sort of style of the Glasgow School and the Charles Rennie Macintosh influence here with all these squares um, on this door, on this green door. So let's carry on. So I think it's great to, oh, this is the studio up at the top of um, Taylor, uh, Jess's husband. Um, that was his studio up at the top there. We're going to move across the road now. Um, there's an artist here in Kukubri called Stuart Morrison and he paints in absolutely the fashion of the, the early art colony artists. He's the one who's always out and about in Kukubri with his easel. Hello Stuart. Oh, hello, hello Stuart. This is Hi. David. Hi. David. Nice I'll to meet you. I'll do a sheet hands no. on anything. I was just explaining how you are, you paint au plein air. I say if you wait for the perfect day to go out and paint, you'll wait forever. And uh, I'm just looking at the clouds up there. They're absolutely beautiful. Beautiful. And Constable, he realised quite quickly that the clouds in the sky was the most important thing in the painting, and it sets the tone for everything. So if your sky's not right, 
it's not going to be a good painting. And how can people find you, book a tour? Well, please go to my website at kukubriarttours.co.uk. Do contact me, let me know your dates, and um, I'll help you uh, put together a lovely package for your visit. There is nothing better than a quiet hour or so wandering around a second-hand bookshop. Next stop, Wigton, Scotland's national book town. This is the old bank bookshop, and around the corner here is Joyce. Hello. I'm Joyce Cochran. I'm a, one of the partners in the old bank bookshop in Wigton. I'm actually standing in the front part of the building, which dates back to 1860. That's uh, the modern part of the building, if you like. 1860 is the modern part. Modern part. Right, yes, okay. uh, right through to the back, as you're heading back from where you're standing, I would actually be looking straight to uh, one of our back windows, but that would have been the door to uh, the customs house, because Wigton was an important port in the 18th century, you know, you had this imposing building. The, the coastline is well known for all its smuggling activities. And then in, in around 1860, they decided to slap a, a bank. And I think it's the city of Glasgow Bank, if I remember correctly. And hence we've got these high ceilings. So enormous vaulted high ceilings. Wonderful yeah. Uh, cornices. Yeah, I'm guessing, all told, it's about the size of half a football pitch. It's a big building. Oh, it's a big building. And completely <laughs> lined, floor to not quite ceiling, with books. Yeah, you're going to ask me how many books I've got. I don't, I'm in the region of 11,000 to 12,000 in, in the shop. Okay, um, so factor that out. How many books do you think there are on sale in Wigton? Altogether. Oh, Lord, I don't know. <laughs> I've no idea. How many bookshops? 12 to 15 bookshop, book-related businesses. I wasn't expecting to do maths on a Friday. <laughs> but the point I'm making is that if you are a book lover... Yeah. Miles and miles and miles and miles and miles of books. You should beat a path to Wigton. Yeah, we've got people now coming from all over the world and why not because we've got so much to offer and there's so many different bookshops we're all different we're all general but we're putting our own stamp and we all i think it'd be fair to say that we all want the customer or the reader because i still think of people as readers i don't think of them as customers to go away if not with the book that they were looking for, maybe with something that they wouldn't have thought about, or if they can't get it in here, they'll get it somewhere else in the town. The thing about Wigton is that people will come and fall in love with Wigton, and if they've not been before, they'll definitely want to come back. It's a magical place. There's something about it, there's something about the people that just keep bringing people back and people are always looking to relocate now. And as Joyce made that point about people clamouring to move to the area, a voice actually piped up from behind one of the many bookshelves saying, I'm, I'm one of those. I'm from Holland. <laughs> from Holland, yeah, from all over the world. Excellent. Tell me your name, first of all, and, and kind of a bit about yourself. Uh, Fred, Fred Cloud. I'm Dutch, uh, 66, hooked on Wigton since 14, 15 years. We came for the first book festival 
and we had so much joy and such a lovely place and such a lovely people. So we never missed any festival since then, when you come back year after year. First year you greet some people, next year you have a chat, third year you have a cup of tea. You come more and more and then you decide to live here. You're exactly an example of what Joyce has just been telling me. Oh yeah, I'm not the only one. Yeah, not the only one. I know people here from, well, New Zealand, America, um, Sweden, uh, for instance. So what is it about Wigton? I think the kindness. It's cosy. You have to love books. The warmth that you get here from, from the people. You're welcome. Hey, that must be nice to hear, Joyce, from a, from a customer. It's wonderful to hear, actually. It's, uh, it's really actually touching. It's really moving. I, I, yeah, I think of Wigton as we're, we just open the windows and open the doors and we're welcoming the world. So Wigton is the town of books. As Joyce said, there's at least a dozen different bookshops for you to come and explore and look around and spend time in. But here's something that really caught my imagination. I'm still in Wigton. It's the evening now. It's coming up to eight o'clock. And actually tonight, I'm spending the night in a bookshop. It's called The Open Book. It's the other end of town from where I was with Joyce earlier. And The Open Book is a bookshop with a flat attached, a, a kind of a, an apartment above the shop that you can rent and stay in. And actually when you stay here, you take on the bookshop as well. Now I'm only staying one night, but I'm sitting here at the dining room table in the flat and there's a visitor's book signed by all of the people that have been here in the months and years past. Uh, and they've come here from all over the world. Oh, I say that. The first one I've turned to here is Dumfries, just up the road. But uh, near there is Nuremberg, Germany, Antwerp, Belgium. Uh, one here in Canada, uh, St Albans, which is down south uh, near London. Taipei. And that person says, it's a long journey, but worth it. A dream has been fulfilled. East Yorkshire, England, quite simply the warmest, kindest place we've visited. We never want to leave. That chimes with what Fred and Joyce were saying. Uh, perhaps they're living here now. Uh, let's have a look here. Chicago, Illinois. Running the open book is a relaxing adventure. We kept busy in the store as visitors browsed and locals nattered. The corner window seat is a view into the life of a Scottish village. I just think it's a brilliant idea. And, you know, really, yeah, it really captivates the imagination. But uh, enough from me for now. It's getting pretty late. I'm going to get ready for bed. And in the morning, I'm going to meet Anne, whose bookshop and whose flat this is. Well, after a really comfortable night's sleep uh, in the flat above the open book bookshop, it's the morning and I'm raring to go. And I'm here with Anne. Anne, hello, nice to meet you. Good morning, it's good to meet you too. Anne Barclay is the operations director of the Wigton Book Festival. Her festival team also runs the Open Book Experience. The Open Book is one of the many projects that we run throughout the year. The experience has been running now for about four years. There, would you believe it, is a three-year waiting list. And we've had people from all across the globe, from Canada, from Taiwan, from the Netherlands, all here to make it their very own unique experience. And I was reading in the visitor's book last night, uh, there's actually a separate book which is kind of 
hints and tips for the next people that, that, that rent the bookshop. And it's talking about um, how to dress the bookshop and where to put your posters up and uh, how to individualise the experience. And actually, the people that come here really do put a lot of thought into making it theirs, putting their stamp on the bookshop. It's really amazing. So we have a, a blackboard that they put outside that they can put on their own daily message. They dress the windows, so um, they, they change the theme depending on the time of year or potentially their own special interests. They often leave things in the bookshop, so you can find parts of their experience here long after they, they have gone. So tell me about the festival. That's very exciting as well. It is very exciting. So I'm lucky to have been involved in the festival almost since it began. Um, originally as a girl guide handing out programmes on the street um, and I've worked for the festival company now for, for 13 years. So the festival is 10 days every autumn, end of September until the beginning of October and it, the town really comes to life. Over the 10 days we have somewhere around 300 author events and it welcomes uh, just shy of 30,000 visitors to Wigtown which is incredible. Well Anne, I wish I could stay longer, I wish, wish this was my bookshop for a couple of weeks. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Anne Barclay. There is another brilliant and well-established book festival in the south of Scotland. Do check out the Borders Book Festival online. We're completely spoilt for choice here for these sorts of things. So here we are at the end of another episode. In fact, this is the final episode of this second series. This one's been completely packed and I've learned loads and loads about the south of Scotland. My favourite thing about doing these episodes is just being able to soak up all the facts and stories and meeting all the passionate and enthusiastic people that you can meet too if you can just get here to the south of Scotland. So to start planning your visit, and why wouldn't you, head online to scotlandstartshere.com. It's a brilliant website packed with inspiration, beautiful photos and very practical links and contact details to get you started get planning and locking in that trip. Also, follow Scotland Starts Here on social media for pictures and more destination tips and download the Scotland Starts Here app to your phone. That's full of songs, stories and suggestions for trips and places to explore. One last time this series then, the brilliant music we use in Scotland Starts Here is from Borders singer-songwriter Evie Archenhold. Thanks as ever to Evie for sharing this track, A Thousand Miles Away. So there are now eight in total of these Scotland Starts Here episodes covering ancestry, castles, art, textiles, food, drink, adrenaline-filled outdoors activities, the area's rural heritage, and so much more. So go back, listen to all of them. Thanks once again to Jack Fillimore and Karis Wall for their help producing these episodes. And if you can, please rate and review Scotland Starts Here in your podcast player. It really helps us get word out about the brilliant south of Scotland. So thanks so much for listening. See you again soon.